For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson. And we begin this readout video from our Wednesday Wake Up newsletter on a sad note, with a tribute to the late Tim Ball. A true climate scientist who had not just a PhD in geography with a specific focus on historical climatology, but a keen sense that science means asking questions and looking at real-world data, not using computer modeling to silence doubters. Crucially, Ball also had the courage of his convictions. He challenged alarmist orthodoxy and stood firm to the end in the face of a barrage of criticism that frequently descended so far into the personal level as to target his family, and also of lawfare from Michael Mann, of which Mark Stein has also been a target. Ball passed away full of years and surrounded by his loving family at age 83. His was a life lived in full, not least because he found things worth believing in and stood by them. It is not a life or a death to regret, although we did take issue with his tendency to call climate alarmism a hoax rather than a dangerously mistaken form of sincere zealotry. But there were things to regret in his life, particularly the price that he paid for standing up in pursuit of truth in open debate. It wasn't just the usual slings and arrows like innuendos about his funding or even random death threats. When we talk about a price, we mean financial as well as emotional. He was drained in both senses, particularly by the suit with Michael Mann, in which he was awarded costs, but never received them. Still, through it all, he stood firm. As Mark Stein said, quote, he had all the qualities of a true warrior, courage, integrity, indomitable resilience, and in his quiet, dignified bearing, a rueful acceptance of the costs they impose, end quote. Let us all honor his legacy by maintaining the highest possible standards in our own lives of clarity, accuracy, courage, and decency. Now, speaking of Michael Mann, no sooner did Hurricane Fiona hit Puerto Rico during a quiet storm season and Nan Madal and Merbach assailed Japan and Alaska, than he was back falsely claiming he told us so. Quote, we are experiencing devastating consequences of past climate inaction, and it really drives home the importance of taking action now, in the form, apparently, of government fixing the weather with taxes. But Mann's claim is false. It's false because hurricanes are not becoming more common or more damaging, and because in its vagueness, it could be saying anything, and a theory that predicts everything predicts nothing. It's not science, it's ambulance chasing, waiting for a bad event, then solemnly declaring that yes, we knew it would happen. And it's even more specious because despite Fiona and then Ian, the Atlantic hurricane season has been unusually mild, which is the opposite of what should be happening if his theory were correct, insofar as we can tell what his theory even was. In the newsletter, we also note that endorsing green goals like net zero and also saying that climate science is settled and all that stuff has been the simple if spineless path for corporations in recent decades, even those in the fossil fuel business, because it all seemed to be nothing but vague feel-good stuff that would only matter many years down the road. But objects in calendar are closer than they appear. And in addition to the energy crisis hammering consumers in Europe and increasingly in North America, it seems that some big banks have made a shocking discovery, namely that going woke could well mean going broke on climate as it does elsewhere. As the Financial Post put it, quote, U.S. banks threaten to leave Mark Carney's Green Alliance over legal risks, end quote. We are tempted to sneer, but instead we say to them, better late than never. Although, since these are commitments they took on just a year ago and are now backing away from, we do have to say it with a soup song of, duh. As the leftists say, guys and gals, get woke. Climate scaremongering is not a tiger you can ride, and the sooner you get off it, the better. And for something even scarier, the idea is back that the solution to climate change might be to blast the stratosphere with chemicals designed to cool the earth, and hey presto, we reach the ideal temperature and stop there.
Even the venerable economist has jumped on this trend, with its climate issue assuring us that, quote, a study published last week considers what it would take to selectively cool the Arctic and halt or even reverse the melting of its ice. It shows that a relatively simple solo geoengineering program, which would inject sun-reflecting sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere above both poles, could cool the region by 2 degrees Celsius. End quote. Woot! What could possibly go wrong? Well, we'll tell you. You might think it's harmless to insist that the science is settled with only oil-smeared deniers raising questions. But one of the massive perils of doing so is that people might really think we do understand how the entire climate works and that we can manipulate it at will using that understanding. Now, even if we could, it would leave unanswered the key question of what the ideal temperature actually is. Was it 1970 or 1270? But in any case, we can't. The arrogance here is astounding. And the possibility here is that such an attempt wouldn't just fail ignominiously to achieve anything, it would have effects. It would take us to a tipping point where temperature falls precipitously or even rises due to unexpected feedbacks. And that's terrifying. By attempting to cool the Earth, we might succeed and bring back the glaciers, wipe out civilization, and even cause the worst mass extinction since the Permian-Triassic one 252 million years ago which would be an ironic achievement from people who spend much of their time hectoring us about the precautionary principle or saying the risk of global warming is so huge that we must not run it and that no cost is too high to try to prevent it based on inadequate knowledge. And now, a word from our sponsor. And that's you. And we are so grateful to all the people who've contributed, including now if you buy me a coffee. It's helping us get the message out on Substack, on Rumble, and here on YouTube, where in fact we've added more than 5,000 subscribers in the last month alone. And so, I put on my best flannel shirt to say to the rest of you, politely and gently, fork over the cash, pronto. We thank you for your kind consideration, and now back to the program. And speaking of inadequate knowledge, it's amazing how often in climate debates, and in public policy debates generally, people just don't grasp that if something needs a subsidy to compete, it isn't secretly more efficient and only government knows. It's less efficient, which means that subsidizing it destroys wealth and takes you further from where you want to be. But we're not going to say it again here, because Bjorn Lomborg just did. Quote, we constantly hear that electric cars are the future, cleaner, cheaper, and better. But if they're so good, he asks, why does California need to ban gasoline-powered cars? Why does the world spend $30 billion a year subsidizing electric ones, end quote? And then he adds, it's all for no purpose at all, because even on the alarmist's own terms, switching to electric vehicles will do nothing for climate. Yes, you heard that right. Lomberg says, quote, if every country achieved its stated ambitious electric vehicle targets by 2030, the world would save 231 million tons of CO2 emissions. Plugging these savings into the standard United Nations Climate Panel model, that comes to a reduction of 0.0002 degrees Fahrenheit by the end of the century, end quote. So it's all pain and no gain, even if EVs have no undesirable environmental side effects, which of course they do, including where the energy comes from to charge them, and the energy that it takes to make the batteries, and the very dirty process of mining the materials that are needed. So, is Lomberg saying don't buy one? Not at all. He's saying, let the price reflect the full cost, and then consumers can decide. A policy that we might usefully adopt across a very wide range of issues, incidentally. In the newsletter, we also complain that climate alarmists continually play fast and loose, not just for the effects of global warming, but its timing. 
How can anyone try to test a theory that won't say when a thing will happen or what it is? Yet we're forever being told things like, this is a recent CNN story, quote, before and after, these glaciers lost an area the size of Manhattan every 10 years since 1931, end quote. So, did the effects of man-made warming really hit in 1931? If you're telling us climate breakdown causes more floods, more droughts, crop failure, or the melting of Arctic ice, should we look for that pattern starting in or around 1931? Or are you all over the calendar as well as all over the map? Can it be 2022 for floods in Pakistan, 2006 for an unusually warm January in Ottawa, 1950 when temperature starts to rise, 2050 if we don't do something, 1980 for a rise in childhood asthma in the United States, and everything and anything in between? If so, it's not science. If not, tell us when it was, and then we'll get on to what it was. And on the subject of science, our March 2020 video on the climate sensitivity question explains that a key issue in climate science is how much warming we can expect from doubling the amount of CO2 in the air. It's called equilibrium climate sensitivity, or ECS. And for decades, the IPCC and others said it was somewhere between 1.5 and 4.5 degrees Celsius, with a best estimate of 3, based on simulations from climate models. Then they suddenly hiked it to between 2.5 and 4 degrees Celsius, but a new study, and yes, if you care, it was peer-reviewed, finds that they flubbed the math and used obsolete data. And if you fix those errors, ECS goes down to 2 degrees or lower. Strange that their mistakes were, as always, in the direction of ramping up the alarmism, isn't it? We also continued our Everybody Knows series with the widespread impression that global wildfires are getting worse and worse. The noted climate experts at the World Economic Forum called this supposed increase, quote, a painful and stark reality of what it means to be living with the effects of climate change, end quote. And because everybody knows, there is no need to check the data, right? Well, we checked it anyway. And here's a chart based on a data set showing total global burn area as measured by satellites. It's sponsored by the European Space Agency and was posted by data analyst Zoe Finn. And looky here. 2018, rather than being the worst year ever, was the lowest year for global area burn since 1994. And the trend has been downward since 2000. Dang, another myth up in flames. Please keep sending us tips for our Everybody Knows series, with links please, to admin at climatedn.com. Finally, on the hot topic of hurricanes, we dipped into the CO2Science.org archive for a look at 260 years of Atlantic hurricane data. And the study found a decrease over time, which is more than a bit odd if, as everyone who's anyone also seems to know, more CO2 means more hurricanes. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and I close by again paying tribute to Tim Ball. May he rest in peace.